This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. I'm recording this on August 1st, 2021, and um, I've been driving around West Virginia for two days, and I am damn exhausted. So uh, so I hope we can get through this with a minimal number of mistakes. The audio uh, sounds a little wiggy here because I don't have a proper microphone, so I'm talking into my Zoom recorder. But this is an important story, and I wanted to get it out there ASAP. Joseph Daniel Casalero, everyone knew him as Danny, was a journalist who died in Martinsburg, West Virginia, in August 1991. He, he was working on a book tentatively titled The Octopus, which promised to tie together pretty much every conspiracy theory of the decade. Uh, the October Surprise, Iran-Contra, and even those FEMA concentration camps that Glenn Beck would freak out about decades later. Danny was found dead in the bathtub in room 517 of the Sheraton Hotel in Martinsburg, his wrist slashed in an apparent suicide attempt. The medical examiner ruled the death a suicide, and that probably should have been the end of it, except that despite the extraordinary nature of his claims, there was some truth to his story, and possibly a whole lot of truth. The question... How much is real? How much is fantasy? How much is provable? How much never will be proven? It's captivated conspiracy theorists to this day. So, as I record this, it's almost 30 years to the day of Danny's death. And um, as a matter of fact, I'm in the same hotel where Danny died. It's a Holiday Inn now, but the bar where Danny drank on the last night of his life is still here. And the Sheets gas station where Danny was seen buying coffee and cigarettes before his death is still down the block. I mean, it's a newer building, and you can get smoothies and cold brew coffee, which I'm sure was not available in the 90s, but it's still Sheets. And it's on, you know, I'm on I 81, which was once this like lonely little stretch of interstate passing by this lonely hotel. Except now it's populated by big box stores. There's a Target and an old Aldi's and a Best Buy. When I when I checked in today, they gave me room 516. I could like literally look out the peephole and see his room. And um, I think it's a good omen. I mean, if I had been given room 517, if I had been given the, you know, Danny's room, I probably would have asked for another room. But um, across the hall, is, is, I'm all right with that. So, so this week in the Failed State Update newsletter... Uh, you will find part one of my story on Danny Casalero 30 years later. And next week, I am going to post part two. So be sure to subscribe at lennyflatley.substack.com. And then as far as the podcast today, I will speak to a couple journalists who have followed up on Danny's work. And I will speak to Danny's cousin, Dominic, to kind of understand what was at the core of the octopus story and what was at the core of Danny Castellaro himself. 
In West Virginia, authorities are investigating the mysterious death of a journalist and possible connections to the BCCI bank scandal and the weapons for Iran case. He was on to the political conspiracy of the century. He was meeting a source in West Virginia. He was about to discover all. Instead, his body was discovered in a hotel room with 12 slashes in his wrist. Local police ruled his death a suicide, but Casalero's family and friends are convinced he was murdered because he had accumulated compelling evidence of widespread government corruption. Danny Casolaro, a 44-year-old freelance journalist, was found dead in his Martinsburg, West Virginia hotel room on August 10, 1991. He had come to town for a big story, perhaps even the biggest story in the country. The investigation had begun in 1990 when he received a tip about Promise, a multi-million dollar software package that had been allegedly stolen by the U.S. government. But over the course of a year, Casolaro dug deeper eventually stumbling onto a scheme that included gambling and arms dealing, spies and organized crime, and perhaps even murder. Describing for me a few weeks before he died what he was doing and some of the people involved and he said uh, a lot of accidents had happened to people who were working on the things that he had been working on he said you know if an accident happens to me don't believe it this is Danny's brother Dr. Tony Casolaro speaking to Australian television in the 1990s his body was embalmed by Monday morning by the time we found out that is against the law in West Virginia his body was embalmed without family consent that certainly makes an autopsy a little more difficult. It all began in August 1990, when the journalist received a tip about Inslaw, a company whose owner claimed that his software was stolen by the Department of Justice. The software was called Promise. P-R-O-M-I-S. This stands for Prosecutors Management Information Software. By the 1980s, the U.S. federal government was a confused mixture of disparate computer systems. There was plenty of data in the government's possession, but it all resided in its own silos. It was a tremendous hassle to share information among the Department of Justice, the IRS, and local law enforcement, to give one example. The genius of Promise was that it could facilitate communication between these different systems. While Inslaw initially aimed its product at the justice system, it could be used to track anything, or anyone. In 1982, Inslaw struck a $10 million deal with the DOJ to install Promise in U.S. attorneys' offices around the country. But the government stopped making its payments, citing cost overruns. By February 1985, Inslaw was forced to declare Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Bill and Nancy Hamilton, the owners of Inslaw, charged that the government conspired to, quote, drive Inslaw out of business through trickery, fraud, and deceit. First by withholding payments, 
than by selling its own pirated version of the software. To some people, this sounds far-fetched. But both a bankruptcy court and federal district court found in the Hamilton's favor. When a court of appeals later reversed these decisions, it was on a technicality. It ruled that the bankruptcy court was the wrong jurisdiction in which to try the case. In a federal court hearing, Judge George Basin ruled the Justice Department had used illegal and underhanded methods to bankrupt Bill Hamilton's Inslaw company. He ordered the government to pay Inslaw $8 million. Trickery, fraud and deceit. You use those words when describing how the Justice Department stole the software. Do you stand by those words? Yes. I, there's no question in my mind about it. Uh, the evidence was overwhelming. So why was the Justice Department so desperate to get the software from Bill Hamilton? A database can be used to keep track of anything. While Promise was designed for court cases, it could be modified for intelligence services to track political dissidents, or to track finances, or to track, really, anything that needs to be tracked. Bill Hamilton had created a powerful tool for the surveillance state. The theft of Promise has been dismissed as a conspiracy theory, and it's certainly one of your more complex stories in that it involves spies and criminals, people that don't leave a paper trail, or if they do, you'll never get your hands on it. But as I started looking into the story, I found a surprising number of journalists took it very seriously. Tim Chirac covers national security, foreign policy, and East Asian politics. He's also the author of Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Intelligence Outsourcing. This case management software for attorneys, it really integrated the flow of a you know, individual case that the Department of Justice handled, right? And so you could add evidence at periods of time or take it out that, well, you know, you couldn't use conclusively in a case or whatever. It was perfect for managing intelligence operations, you know? According to Castellero, the Promise software was altered by someone working for the United States government. It was given a backdoor, a special login that the user didn't know about, through which American intelligence could enter the system at any time. I think you can see where I'm going with this. The United States government had illegally obtained the software. They were selling it to intelligence agencies around the world. And once another country implemented it, our intelligence agencies were able to access that data. The countries who were reportedly compromised in this manner include Canada, Australia, and Israel. They were getting access, penetrating other countries' intelligence systems. They could track a country's, you know, Israel's intelligence operations, you know, as their management in those intelligence agencies was working on it. So that's extraordinary, you know, and scary. Even more scary was how Promise fit into the government's plans for martial law. As governor of California in the 1960s, Ronald Reagan made it clear that he placed American protesters in the same category as terrorists and spies for other countries. When he became president, 
he brought this attitude with him to Washington. And after 9-11, we saw further evolution of domestic spying. And if the reports are correct, promise was a key component of this. Reagan was elected to the presidency. He installed Louis Giafrida as head of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Giafrida was an old cold warrior from Reagan's California days whose specialty was suppression of unrest and dissent. Giafrida, North, and George Bush began to turn FEMA into an instrument of domestic anti-terrorism. Then I realized that there was really something to that, you know. Promise might have been used for that FEMA database, right, that dated back when they were first building, you know, electronic databases, right? Because I think until then, like, of course there were huge lists of, you know, the FBI and, like, the New York police, you know, had extensive surveillance of leftists and black activists. And there was huge lists, you know, but it wasn't computerized until, like, you know, I guess the 60s or 70s, you know, really. And so, like, this FEMA thing was, like, you know, like, under continuity of government, if there's martial law, you have to, like, round up all these people. And that's what Jack Brooks started asking Oliver North about. Right, right, right. In the um, 1987 Iran-Contra hearings. Right. And right, and, then, and then, you know, Senator Inouye is like, no, 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 you're not going there. <laughs> and, you know, cut it off right away. Man, that was amazing to see that in retrospect, you know. Because uh, I remember watching those hearings and I must have seen that incident, but I didn't, I, you know, I didn't grasp how significant it was. Colonel North, in your work at the uh, NSC, were you not assigned at one time to work on plans for the continuity of government in the event of a major disaster? Mr. Chairman, I believe that question touches upon a highly sensitive and classified area, so may I request that you not touch upon that, sir? I was particularly concerned, Mr. Chairman, because I read in Miami papers and several others that there had been a plan uh, developed by that same agency, a contingency plan in the event of emergency that would suspend the American Constitution. And I was deeply concerned about it and wondered if that was the area in which he had worked. I most respectfully request that that matter not be touched upon at this stage. That was the link between, you know, Bush's post 9-11 spying and earlier spying was this FEMA program. And then, like, I had people, you know, told me they wouldn't identify themselves. Someone who had seen, like, a system like that while he was working in the White House, you know, they had all these networks that they were always in the Situation Room or whatever, right? The National Surveillance Center that CAA first set up, you know, like all these all these separate lines of data that came in. And, and so, like, that would be one of them, right? Okay, let's look this database up from the old days to see if anybody from the Muslim community is, you know, in New York is on it or something like that, right? While Tim Sharrock was reporting this story, he did something that I don't think any reporter had done yet. That is, talk to somebody from the intelligence community who was able to confirm on the record 
that the government had indeed used promise in an intelligence program. That was like the best part of that whole story was that Norman Bailey guy that I talked to. He's the first intelligence guy to ever admit that they used promise. My intent was to get him to admit to NSA, you know, use promise, right? But I had to like get at it in a kind of careful way without just coming out right away and asking that, right? Uh, and I did. I managed to do it. The promise software is, was, it's not any longer, but it was uh, the principal software element of uh, uh, the following of, of uh, criminal money laundering by Treasury. I don't know what the CIA is. It's totally clear from what he says that NSA had promise and was using it. Because I was talking to him in connection to electronic surveillance of banking, right? Because the way that they were going after this guy I was writing about in Saudi Arabia was the following their financial transactions, right? And so Bailey had been in Reagan's NSC uh, when they sort of perfected this program of following financial transactions from start to finish. And so that's how, like, when there was a bombing of a disco in Germany, and that was the first time the U.S. was able to use this system to track, like, they tracked their money flow from Libya to these guys that blew up the disco. On April 5th, in West Berlin, a terrorist bomb exploded in a nightclub frequented by American servicemen. Sergeant Kenneth Ford and a young Turkish woman were killed, and 230 others were wounded, among them some 50 American military personnel. This monstrous brutality is but the latest act in Colonel Gaddafi's reign of terror. The evidence is now conclusive that the terrorist bombing of La Belle Discotheque was planned and executed under the direct orders of the Libyan regime. So that was using promise. It was used, you know, clearly for like those kind of operations, you know. That's what Bill's been waiting for all these years, right? Some Somebody from the NSA or somebody to yeah. actually come on the record and saying, yeah, we used promise. And he did. It's, it's, that, that was the most important kernel in, in that story, really. It was the first time anyone had actually, in the intelligence world, admitted to that, you know. Jack Calhoun is a historian, investigative reporter, professional archival researcher, and the author of Gangsterismo, The United States, Cuba, and the Mafia, 1933-1966. Jack made waves recently with a story for Covert Action magazine titled, CIA Adapts Database Software Called Promise with Backdoor for Cyber Espionage. The story is significant as it provides the first documentary evidence that the Department of Justice sold promise to other nations. 
The article reveals a 1985 letter between Assistant Attorney General William Bradford Reynolds and U.S. Attorney William Weld in Boston. It authorizes the transaction of Promise software to Saudi billionaire Khalid bin Mahfouz. According to the letter, the deal was being brokered by arms dealers associated with the Iran-Contra affair. I think the key point with the the evidence that I used in my covert action piece was here is an actual cable uh, or a letter that's sent from the assistant attorney general Bradford Reynolds to the U.S. attorney William Weld in Boston, in which he outlined a covert plan to distribute promised databases with a, quote, special retrieval unit, the trapdoor that these would be sold in the Middle East. And in the Iran arms for hostages deals, there were certain arms dealers who were involved in these transactions. This is a quote, promise must have a soft arrival, no paperwork, customs, or delay. But then he added, quite importantly, quote, it must be equipped with the special retrieval unit. So it's clear that what they were doing was distributing promise software in the Middle East using arms dealers from the region to broker the transactions, and this software would have installed in it the trapdoors, which would then enable U.S. and German intelligence to download the intelligence secrets from the different uh, countries in, in the Middle East. One thing I'm not clear on, or I just think is not clear, is what programs have used promise. Like, Do you have any examples of, of its use? One of the first things that we tracked was uh, how the trapdoors were used to gather intelligence on what your allies or your enemies may be doing based on the money movements from their different bank accounts. This was a way to monitor arms shipments uh, often. If you're dealing with a secret arms transaction and you see the money move from one bank to another bank, and you've been following this, you can see the trail of the arms circle. That's one thing. I mean, it could be used in terms of drug operations. It could be used on another side to move money around to keep it from the prying eyes of, say, U.S. government regulators, too. It can be used to track money, but I guess the same technology could be used to create a path for the money that would be hard for yes. regulators to pick up on if you wanted to move money around and hide it? I mean, especially if you're trying to build up a small guerrilla army somewhere and you had to move money around to buy equipment to move it to be in, in the theater of operation, you would need a lot of uh, camouflaged money movements. You could use it for offensive purposes. You could use it for defensive purposes. And it was used in part to apply sanctions against the Soviet Union and the, uh, the Reagan administration. Crypto AG was a Swiss cryptography firm that was purchased by the CIA and West German intelligence in 1970. In 1993, the CIA bought out its partner and took full possession of the company. Until its liquidation in 2018, Calhoun writes in Covert Action magazine, the company, quote, 
sold encryption machines to more than 100 governments seeking protection for diplomatic communications and other sensitive records. Just like Promise, Crypto AG products could be readily accessed by U.S. intelligence. So we had a situation where a country, some foreign country, has secrets they want to keep. They, you know, purchase the software, the technology from Crypto AG, and then CIA can turn around and enter because they have like a backdoor or a password. Yes. And then they just they just download it all and charge their customers. Oh, okay. I mean, that's uh, the CIA uh, secret history of uh, crypto a- the crypto AG operation called it the, quote, intelligence coup, unquote, of the 20th century and boasted, quote, foreign governments were paying good money to the U.S. and West Germany to have their most secret communications read by foreign countries, unquote. Wow. And it, it, it noted that that crypto supplied nearly 40% of all the uh, uh, foreign the U.S. foreign foreign intelligence uh, information, communications information that came from code breakers came from Crypto AG. Forty oh, percent, you said. Yes, that's that's a that's insane. In 1990, when Danny Casolero began his investigation, what looked like a simple case of government corruption quickly became tied to some of the biggest stories of the 80s. He connected the pirating of the Promise software to the Iran-Contra deal, the BCCI banking scandal, a series of murders on tribal land in California, and a number of other events. What connected all of these stories was a close-knit network of criminals and spies. At the time of his death, Casolero was shopping around a proposal for a book that would expose the whole sordid story. He called this conspiracy, and his book, The Octopus. Now that I'd learned that the Inslaw scandal was something to be taken seriously, I wondered what other aspects of the octopus were worth looking into. Expanding a little bit, you know, Danny Casolero's um, investigation went beyond even the uses of promise and basically tying BCCI. I know you've worked on the BCCI story. Um, do you think Danny's larger... Oh, you mean the octopus? Yeah, the octopus. What, what's your opinion on the octopus? Well, I think he kind of tied up a bunch of of different covert operations that were going on pretty much at the same time and saw them all as a, a part of a bigger operation. I just think it was different components of an intelligence system. I don't think it was one big uh, kind of centralized plan. That's just how I see it as uh, particular individualized covert operations rather than some kind of a bigger conspiratorial enterprise. I think because Danny had been a fiction writer to begin with, he was very interested in um, both the motivation of these people, but also putting a frame around it. And I think he, he basically saw that there were a lot of the same people. While covering one of these trickier stories, there is always the danger that the author might create a bogus narrative out of an incomplete set of facts. 
Perhaps no one knows this better than Dominic Orlando, Danny Castellaro's cousin and a writer for the stage and television. His play, Danny Castellaro Died for You, based on the events leading up to the death of his cousin, was last produced in Chicago in 2014. I think a lot of people, there was a very bizarre, especially the Washington Post seemed to really go out of their way to try and make him look pathetic, which I didn't really understand. I think probably because he was a complete freelancer and not really attached to any kind of organization. There seemed to be, and also because, you know, it's kind of uh, the way uh, stories work in America because he lost, you know? So then you have to, you have to justify. I mean, uh, I can tell you uh, more than once, you know, with readings and the productions, when people were casting Danny, often they would present me with these kind of schlubby or kind of ridiculous looking actors. And I was like, my cousin was a very handsome man. He was actually a ladies man. But because of the fact that he lost, it was very hard for them to wrap around that the movie had a bad ending. And so therefore something must've been wrong with him because otherwise the movie would have had a happy ending, and he would have gotten the bad guys. I feel like that was the narrative issue at play that he, he, in order to have lost in the way that he did, it must've been his own fault. Was there an element of like, you know, going back to that Washington post piece, he was an outsider. He wasn't part of the club. So he must not have I been do a think serious. That. Yeah, I, I do think that's true. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he basically had the equivalent of, of a blog at this point or a website when he was doing those newsletters. Um, and it was kind of a, it was a, it was a solid business. Um, but again, it was from, by the professional class, it was pretty much looked down on. Anyway, that's the way it seems. I mean, I'm only going based on articles. I can't read their minds either, but that's how it seemed to me. It seemed to me they wanted to go out of, out of their way to make him seem flawed or, or wretched. I mean, what he sort of discovered, and, you know, the one that always pops right out is like um, E. Howard Hunt, the, one of the Watergate burglars. He was also involved in the Bay of Pigs. And I think what Danny realized, and, and he... he uh, he may have over an hour, you know, he may have put it into too much of a framework, but I think the essence of it was basically there are all these ex-spies, ex-SBI, uh, the criminals that they were dealing with. It just seemed like there was this kind of freelancing that was going on in that world for profit. And I really think that that's what he discovered was this kind of network of freelancing that was going from kind of, uh, scandal to scandal and that a lot of the scandals just had the same people involved in them and that that was odd. So if that makes any sense, I mean, I'm saying this off the top of my head, but I think that was the essence of what the octopus was, was that these, these same names kept reappearing. It wasn't like there were a bunch of people sitting around a table. It was more like there was a whole world that he uncovered of this, these freelancing criminals basically yeah yeah sure you're you know you're planning water the watergate break in and it's like you go to your rolodex and it's going to be right who are you going to you're not going to exactly who are you going to call for something like that when danny castellaro died in august 1991 it seemed like the whole world took note 
He was a journalist who was potentially on the biggest story in the nation, who had predicted his own murder. His death at the Sheridan Martinsburg Hotel seemed to be confirmation of his worst fears, and the worst fears of his loved ones. Danny was quickly considered to be a hero in the alternative press, while the more mainstream media, the Washington Post, even the Village Voice, were all pretty sure that Danny had failed as a journalist and committed suicide. When I embarked on this story, I didn't know what I'd find. But after looking at Promise and how it was stolen by the U.S. government, I have to wonder, is there more to this case than a simple suicide? What did Danny stumble onto? And who may have killed him? So that was a an episode that I like to call... Danny Castellaro and the Surveillance State. It actually is the first episode I did. Um, I was going to do a whole series on Castellaro, a podcast series, but decided instead to write it all down. So be sure to check out the Failed State Update newsletter for more reporting on this subject and other coverage of the imminent collapse of society. And you can uh, get that by going to lennyflatley.substack.com. I'm not the man. I'm not the man. I'm not the man.